Well, on this first Sunday of Advent, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the last book in Holy Scripture, where our text this morning is going to be chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. We're going to read through verse 20 in Revelation chapter 1. As you're turning there, you might be asking yourself, why would you preach from Revelation during Advent? That seems like an odd choice. Why not a gospel or, or Isaiah or something like that? Why Revelation? That's a good question. And the answer has to do with, with that word, Advent. The word, Advent, means simply arrival or coming. And that's what we're celebrating as a church during this season. We're looking back with joy and with faith on Christ's first coming, His first Advent some 2,000 years ago. And at the same time, we're also looking forward with faith and with anticipation to Christ's second coming, His, his second Advent, when He will return to gather His church and consummate His kingdom. That's what Advent is. We look back to see the faithfulness of God in order to look ahead to the future of God's faithfulness to His Word still so that we might be faithful to Him in the present. That's what we celebrate during this season. And that connection is why we're focused this year on the book of Revelation. Despite popular perception, Revelation is not a book of fanciful conjecture about the end of time. Revelation is primarily concerned with calling the church to be faithful to her Lord, who is returning soon to judge the living and the dead. In fact, few books in the New Testament are as clearly focused on faithfulness as Revelation is. And you could, you could summarize the book of Revelation as a manual for faithfulness as Christians wait the return of Jesus Christ. That's what the book is. It's a manual for faithfulness. And therefore, it's a very fitting book for the celebration of Advent. It helps us see the Christ for whom we wait. And in seeing Him, it equips us to wait faithfully for His return. And we kick it off today with chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. Our series these four weeks is going to focus on four visions of Jesus Christ. Four visions that John sees about the risen and reigning Jesus Christ. And today's passage is the introductory vision that gives shape to the rest of the book. So let's give our attention now to God's Word here in chapter 1. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 9. You can follow along with me. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, 
From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help now. Anytime we come to the Scriptures, it is a task that's beyond our natural ability. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination now during our time of listening to Your Word. We pray that the Spirit would illuminate our minds, that we would understand the things of God. We pray for the Spirit to illuminate our hearts, that we would believe the things that You have revealed. Father, we pray that You would keep me from error, that You would grant Your people discernment, that we would see and savor and behold and glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We ask for Your help, Father. We ask for You to manifest Yourself among us by Your Spirit through Your Word this morning to the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. The headlines would be unmistakable. So clear they would almost write themselves. Recent restrictions suggest opposition to churches on the rise. Businesses demand customers adhere to cultural values or face exclusion from the marketplace. Christians increasingly out of step with the culture. The headlines would be unmistakable. They would almost write themselves. And you might be thinking that I'm describing life in our world But I'm actually thinking of the first century, the world in which the Apostle John writes this book. Those same hypothetical headlines would very much describe the Roman Empire as John writes from his island prison. For example, in John's day, persecution of the church was not widespread, but there were clear signs that it was increasing. What had been sporadic oppression was increasingly less sporadic indicating that a major escalation was on the way. Local trade unions, the big business of John's day, were insistent that everyone, including Christians, pay allegiance to their cultural gods. If you wanted to buy something from the local silversmith, you had to express your allegiance to the deity of that group. How would you do that? Often through a verbal affirmation of things that were really unquestioned by everyone else, but seemed patently false to you. Signaling statements like, Caesar is Lord. You want to buy from my shop? You've got to tell me, Caesar is Lord. Even some professing Christians in John's day were beginning to suggest that compromise with the world was the best path forward for the church. Look, just say what they want you to say, get it over with, and let's all move on. 
So put the whole picture together. Localized but increasing opposition. Big business demanding allegiance to declared values. Even other professing churches moving closer and closer to the official cultural viewpoint, even though that puts them farther and farther away from the Word of God. Put all of that together, and you could just as easily be describing life in the year 2020 as you could the Roman world of John's day. They are very similar. And that's precisely why we need to hear this book, brothers and sisters, especially during this Advent season. The world from which John writes, a world of opposition and tribulation, has always been the situation of the church. I want to be clear on that, so please hear me. Tribulation has been the constant companion of the church, just as John says in verse 9. But in our day... This day, today, perhaps we're beginning to feel that reality more than we have in a long time. It seems that the last trappings of whatever we called cultural Christianity are being stripped away. And what we're left to face is a world where the confession Jesus is Lord is considered both treasonous and dangerous. Look, I'm not trying to make any predictions And I am certainly not trying to make any backhanded, behind-the-scenes comment on political trends. My concern is spiritual. It does appear we are on the precipice of a great spiritual upheaval. Every week, it seems, I hear of another church facing incredible difficulty. I know of a church in Pittsburgh that is splitting over COVID. That should make you weep. Every week, we hear of another Christian who's stretched to the limits. Every week, I hear of another pastor who's struggling against the secular tsunami that is blasting our congregations. We are on the precipice of a great spiritual upheaval, it seems. And that means, friends, that we need to hear this book, particularly at Advent. Through this book, the Apostle John opens our eyes to see the unseen. The cosmic reality that undergirds not only our lives, but all of history. And that cosmic reality, friends, is centered on the risen and reigning Jesus Christ, whom John sees here in chapter 1. That's why this year, of all years, Revelation fits with Advent. The entire purpose of Advent is to renew our hearts in waiting for and witnessing to Christ. And John's visions help us do just that. Revelation is unique for many things. But perhaps most unique is its visionary nature. John describes in words what he sees with his eyes. It's a very visionary book. And in these four short weeks, we're going to focus on the visionary high point, you might say. What John sees concerning Jesus Christ. And we're doing this, brothers and sisters, with the aim of strengthening our hearts to be faithful to Christ. My logic for this series is pretty simple. I'm going to put all my cards on the table. My logic is pretty simple. The more clearly we see Jesus Christ and His glory, the better prepared we are to remain faithful to Him in tribulation. That's the whole aim of the series. The more clearly we see Christ, the better equipped we are to remain faithful to Him. Or to say it another way, perhaps a simpler way, I hope that Advent this year kickstarts our readiness 
to joyfully suffer for the sake of Christ. I hope it kickstarts our readiness to joyfully suffer for the sake of Christ. And that kickstart begins today with this introductory vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1 that we just read. Now, as will be the case for every single week during Advent, we're not going to plumb all the depths of this text. There are countless connections from this passage with other parts of the Bible that we'll just have to save for another series. And if you're wondering, when are you going to preach Revelation start to finish? The very last sermon series of my life. So I'm not going to cover all of the depths of these texts. Our focus is going to be much smaller. What does John see about Christ and how does it equip us to be faithful? That's what we're trying to do in these weeks. What does John see about Christ and how does it equip us to be faithful? In today's passage, there are three pictures of Christ that frame the rest of the book. John sees Jesus at work in the church in three ways. And then at the end, there is one grand takeaway from the text. So... Let's consider those three pictures together in order to work our way up to that one grand takeaway. The first picture comes in verses 9 to 13, where John sees that Christ is present to sustain his church. It's the first picture. Christ is present to sustain his church. Before John sees the Lord Jesus, he first describes the situation facing the church. Notice the setting, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, you'll look for a long time and not find a better description of the church's life than what John gives in verse 9. Notice the three descriptions that he uses, tribulation, kingdom, and endurance. Friends, those phrases should be taken together as summarizing the life of the church. Who are we? We are citizens of Christ's kingdom. But we experience that kingdom through the endurance of tribulation. And this situation is not new. It was shown to us in the life of the Lord Jesus Himself. How did Christ ascend to the throne of God's kingdom through the endurance of tribulation for the joy that was set before Him. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. So this is the pattern of the church's life from Jesus to the apostles and now to us. We are citizens of the kingdom of God and yet we enter that kingdom only through the endurance of tribulation. Brothers and sisters, this is a healthy corrective for us as we think about our life in this present age. Sometimes when Christians talk about tribulation, they tend to only think in future terms the great tribulation that is to come. And while Scripture does speak of a great tribulation, the overwhelming sense in the New Testament is that tribulation is the normal experience of the church in every age. We are not the first believers to face hardship, and we will not be the last unless the Lord Jesus returns. And listen, keeping this perspective in view protects us from some wrong assumptions. 
protects us from some wrong assumptions that I don't want you to hear me saying at any point in this series. So I'm putting them here at the beginning to front load my clarification. Keeping this perspective in view protects us from some wrong assumptions. Our aim is not to return to some former way of life where things were just easier for the church and everything was just plain better. The good old days don't actually exist. And at the same time, the trials we face cannot be solved with mere earthly solutions. There is no social or cultural reform we can accomplish that will make tribulation go away and never come back. What the church of John's day experienced is what we experience because such is life on this side of Christ's return. Who are we? We are citizens of the kingdom and yet we only enter that kingdom through the endurance of tribulation. From Jesus to the apostles to us. This is who we are. Now, this should raise a question in your mind. How do we exhibit this kind of patient endurance that John writes about? If this is the church's experience down through the ages, how do we uphold that heritage of faithfulness? How do we hold on to the rope? Well, friends, notice what John sees in verse 10. This is where the answer is found. It's found in what John sees, beginning in verse 10. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, John hears a loud voice like a trumpet. You see it there, verse 10? In the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel heard a very similar sound right before he heard the voice of God. And Moses, in Exodus 19, was summoned to meet God at Mount Sinai with the sound of a great trumpet. So the blast of the trumpet in verse 10 is telling us that John is about to receive divine revelation. And indeed, that's what happens. Verse 11, John hears a heavenly command to write down what he sees. Then John is to send that book to the seven churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Write this down, the voice says. But then something remarkable happens. Before John writes down the message, he turns around to see the one who is speaking to him. Notice verses 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Friends, we're going to consider the details of this son of man in just a moment. But for now, I want you to note where John sees him. The son of man is in the midst of the lampstands, right in the middle of them. Why is that significant? Well, if you look down at verse 20 you'll see that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches of verse 11, or the church in its entirety. The lampstands are the churches. Just as the lampstand in the temple stood for the light of God's presence among His people, so now God's presence shines in the world in and through His church. The lampstands represent the churches of Jesus Christ. And here's the key point. This is the key point, friends. Christ, who is the Son of Man, is present with His church as she endures tribulation. He's in the midst of the lampstands. He's not aloof. He's not absent from His people as they enter the kingdom through tribulation. No, Christ is wonderfully and faithfully present with His church right in the midst of what they endure. 
He is carrying out His priestly ministry among His people, with them, present. This is a fascinating connection to think through. In the Old Testament, in the temple, there was a lampstand. Picturing, as we just said, the light of God's presence among His people. You remember in the tabernacle, then in the temple, the seven seven-pronged lampstand, that light represented the presence of God. But in order for that light to shine, the priest had to maintain the lampstand, didn't he? He had to keep the oil fresh and the wicks trimmed. The priest maintained the lamp. So also, the Lord Jesus, as our high priest, is present among His church to keep our light shining as well. He is present in the midst of His church, correcting us, teaching us, leading us to shine the light of God's presence in the dark world. Christ is present, maintaining His church, and He does so through His Word. Friends, this is why we make the Bible central each and every Sunday to the worship of our church's life. It's through Christ's Word that He manifests Himself among us and maintains our witness and our testimony. It's His work here through His Word by the Holy Spirit that keeps us going. And what this means, brothers and sisters, is that our patient endurance does not rest solely on our efforts. That's good news. The the work of entering the kingdom through the endurance of tribulation does not rest solely on us. Endurance is the work of Christ among us in our midst through His Word. You see, this is why John says back in verse 9 that this patient endurance is in Jesus. Do you see that little phrase, verse 9? It's in Jesus. That's where the endurance is found. And that's how the endurance is displayed in the church as we humbly submit ourselves to Christ and to His Word in our midst. Friends, this is why it's so central that we gather together to worship under the Word of God. This is how Christ keeps us in the faith. This is why it's so central that you hear the Word of God in your own life, week in and week out. This is how Christ keeps you in the faith. He is present in your life in His Word keeping you steady until the end. We need our light. We need our witness to continue shining for the glory of God. And praise God, that light is sustained in us by the ministry of Christ as He is present among us in and through His Word. That's the first picture. Christ is present to sustain His church. The second picture picks up right from this point and it continues with what John says. Sees. Beginning in verse 13, John sees picture number two. Christ is mighty to defend his church. Christ is mighty to defend his church. Our, fir- our, our focus here is verses 13 to 16. And as you can see there in the text, these verses are rich in descriptive language. What's more, the the Old Testament background to these verses is both deep and broad. We could spend all of Advent unpacking just these verses, but we'll have to content ourselves with just a few moments this morning. And the overall sense of these very rich verses is that Christ is unthinkably mighty. He's unthinkably mighty, like a warrior armed and ready, 
Christ stands poised to defend and uphold His church. From head to toe, John sees a mighty figure. Notice some of the detail with me. First of all, Christ is pictured as a king. The title, Son of Man, as you know, was Jesus' preferred title for Himself in the Gospels. But the title itself has roots in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 7. In that passage, Daniel sees a figure like a son of man, that is, someone bearing human form, who comes into the presence of God. And as this son of man comes before the Almighty, he receives from God a kingdom. God gives this one like a son of man dominion over all the earth. He gives him dominion. In fact, the bigger picture in Daniel 7 is that this Son of Man is the one who defeats the ungodly kingdoms that have risen up in opposition to God. So the background you see is royal. The Son of Man is established by God to rule over all the earth. So when John sees one like a Son of Man in verse 13, he's telling you that he sees the King. He sees the King, the Lord Jesus the one who has dominion over all things. He's a king. At the same time, though, this king is also a priest. Notice how the Son of Man is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Most likely, this represents priestly attire. That's what Christ is doing in the midst of the lampstands. He's maintaining their light like a priest. This is the one who intercedes for and represents the people in the presence of God. So notice these two important biblical threads, king and priest, they're coming together in the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. He rules over His church and He represents His church in the very presence of God. He is both king and priest. But to perform such an important ministry, the Son of Man must be more than a man. He must be divine. God in human flesh. And indeed, that's what John sees. Notice verse 14, where John sees that the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. What's that about? Well, again, John is drawing on Daniel chapter 7. In the prophet's vision, Daniel is given a glimpse of the Ancient of Days. He's allowed to see a glimpse of God Himself. And as is often the case in Scripture, God is described with human terms even though God has no physical body. And one of those descriptions in Daniel 7 is that the Ancient of Days has hair like pure wool, white like snow. So catch what John has done. With language that would be unmistakable to anyone who knew the Old Testament, John is saying what is true of God, what is true of the Ancient of Days, is true of the Son of Man as well. Christ shares the very glory of God, for He is God in the flesh. This is why Christ can rule as King and intercede as priest. Because in His own nature, Christ reconciles humanity and God together in one person. He is God in the flesh, and therefore He is both King and priest over the church. John then describes the Son of Man's moral character. Look at verses 14 to 16. This is really key 
the physical descriptions in these verses are less about Jesus' appearance and more about His character. John is not telling us what He looks like. He's telling us what Jesus is like. There's so much depth here, but let's hit the high points. We're just going to go rapid fire. The Son of Man is discerning and pure. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees through pretense. And He discerns every situation and every heart with absolute righteousness. The Son of Man is faithful and strong. His feet are like burnished bronze. Christ is not, like so many other leaders, plagued by feet of clay. He has no hidden moral flaw that undermines His standing. He is tested and tried and faithful. The Son of Man is powerful. His voice is like the roar of many waters. In Ezekiel 43, God comes to the prophet and His coming sounds like the rush of many waters. So also the Son of Man comes with the power of God Almighty since He is God in the flesh. The Son of Man is the righteous judge. From His mouth, verse 16, comes a sharp two-edged sword. In Isaiah, the prophet is equipped with the Word of God to carry out His mission. And that Word is described as a sharp sword. So also Christ, here in Revelation 1, wields the sword of the Word because He is the Messiah, the Anointed One. It's through Christ's Word that salvation comes to the church. And it is through Christ's Word that the nations are called to account. He's the righteous judge. Finally, the Son of Man is glorious. His face is like the sun shining in full strength. Christ is not reflecting glory like Moses did on Sinai. No, Christ is radiating glory. For He is Himself God in full splendor and full glory. Friends, when you put all of those descriptions together, the only conclusion is that there is no one like this Son of Man. He is unparalleled in His perfections. And He is unsurpassed in His strength. He is mighty in the purest sense of the word. Mighty as only God can be. And He stands in the midst of His church, poised and ready to defend her and to protect her life. This is the takeaway of the description. John piles up all of this imagery, which would have been very clear to his readers. John piles up all of the images because he wants us to see that Christ and Christ alone is the great champion of the church. On the battlefield of the ages where the powers and the principalities wage war against God and against His people, our champion, our defender, is this mighty Son of Man. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church because those gates have been crushed under the burnished bronze feet of Jesus Christ. That's the takeaway. When the war wages, Christ is the champion. So we don't know precisely what the future holds. And beware of anyone who tells you precisely what is going to happen. We don't know precisely what the future holds, but we do know the one who will defend us, come what may. And that means our future is secure and unshakable. In fact, that's where the opening vision concludes. John sees one more picture of Christ in verses 17 and 18. And here we see how Christ uses His mighty power This is the final picture. Number three, Christ is sovereign to save His church. He's present, He's mighty, 
And Christ is sovereign to save His church. Upon seeing Christ, John falls flat on his face, which is to be expected when you see such a glorious figure. John falls down like he's dead. And remarkably, though, that's not where the scene ends. Christ, with great humility, reaches out and and touches John. The Lord of the universe puts his hand on the shoulder of his servant. Friends, if you came today wondering what the heart of Jesus Christ is like, here is your reminder that he is merciful beyond anything you can imagine. The Lord of the universe, exalted in glory, puts his hand on the shoulder of his servant. He's radiating, exalted above the heavens, and yet he's willing to stoop down to his servants, to his people, and show them his mercy. And in fact, that's the message that Christ communicates to John. Notice verse 17 and into verse 18. Listen to what Jesus says. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now we're going to come back to Christ's command in just a moment. But at this point, I want us to note Jesus' self-description. So far, we've heard John's description. We've heard what John sees. Now we're going to hear Jesus' words. This is Christ's own description of Himself. And He focuses with laser-like clarity on one and only one attribute. Sovereignty. When Jesus declares what He's like, the truth He emphasizes is absolute sovereignty. And this sovereignty, this power to rule, is revealed in two dramatic ways. First of all, Christ is sovereign by nature. That is, He is sovereign because of who He is. Notice that phrase where Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Friends, that phrase comes from the Old Testament, particularly from the book of Isaiah. And every time it's used in Isaiah, it is God Himself who uses it. God is the first and the last. He existed before all things. He created all things. And therefore, God rules all things. Indeed, all things find their purpose in God. Everything that exists does so for the glory of God. God and God alone is the first and the last. And here in Revelation 1, Jesus claims the title for Himself. He is the first and the last. Meaning that He is God in the flesh. He possesses by nature the same sovereignty that God Himself displays in the Old Testament. So make no mistake, friends, when it comes to divinity, when it comes to sovereignty, Jesus of Nazareth is very clear, unmistakably clear. He is not merely a good man. He is not merely a wise teacher. He is not a faithful human being to whom God gave special powers. No, with self-conscious authority, Jesus says, I am God. He is sovereign by nature. The whole Christian faith starts with this point. With this confession. That Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Given to us for our salvation. He's sovereign by nature. But Jesus is not finished. He also declares that He is sovereign by work. 
That is, he is sovereign because of what he has accomplished. Notice the clear reference to Christ's resurrection. Who is this Son of Man? He is the living one. It's so good. He, he died having shed his blood on the cross, but now he lives forevermore. Having crushed death by death, Jesus will never die again. Friends, this is the distinguishing point between Christianity and all other religions. Christ will never die again. Muhammad is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. Karl Marx is dead. Charles Darwin is dead. Buddha is dead. And none of them are coming back. Jesus is alive and will never die again. He is the living one. He's sovereign by the work that he has accomplished. And as a result of his work, he has the keys to death and hell. That means Jesus has the authority over these enemies. Death is the final weapon of sin, and hell is the place where death reigns. And yet both of those enemies are in submission to Jesus Christ. Think about that, brothers and sisters. Perhaps this is a correction that some of us need. The most terrifying thing in the world for humans is death. And the most frightening place to imagine is hell itself. But these enemies are not free to do whatever they will. These enemies are not sovereign. Christ is sovereign. To put it very plainly, death obeys Jesus Christ. And hell exists because Christ determines that it is so. Everything is underneath His sovereign burnished bronze feet. These are the worst enemies that we can face and Jesus rules all of them. And if these are the worst enemies that we can face, then we have nothing to fear. That's the takeaway. That's the command that Jesus gives to John. He commands him, after all the glory, after all the trembling, the message that Christ wants John to hear is this, fear not. Don't be afraid. Since Christ is sovereign over all things, He will save His church and He will save her to the uttermost. Think of it, friends. John turns around. He sees the one. He falls down dead. Jesus puts His hand on John. And when He looks up and their eyes meet for the first time, the very first words that Jesus says to His servant, fear not. Don't be afraid. There is no amount of suffering that can derail God's purposes. There is no amount of tribulation that can hijack your life. We can even be exiled like John from all that we hold dear and still Christ reigns in glory. He stands in the midst of His church. He's mighty to defend His church and He's sovereign to save His church. And therefore, with the tenderness of a good shepherd and with the power of God Himself... Jesus says to you and to me and to John and to the church down through the ages, fear not. To put it positively, brothers and sisters, courage is the application for the first week of Advent. Every week I'm going to try to give you one piece of application. The application for this week is courage. What do we need as we face turbulent days? We need courage. What do we need as tribulation rises against the Lord's church? We need courage. And where do we find such courage? Especially when our hearts are so easily afraid. We find courage in the face of the living one. The Son of Man. The first and the last. The one who holds the keys of death 
and hell. We take our courage from Christ. We focus our faith on Christ. We center our church on Christ. We run hard to know Christ through His Word. And the fruit of that, brothers and sisters, is courage. What do I mean by courage? It's the courage to stand firm on the Scriptures in their entirety, believing that Christ's Word is true and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the courage to stand on the Scriptures. It's the courage to be out of step with the rest of the culture, believing that faithfulness to Christ is better than the fleeting applause of the world or of your family or of your friends or of your career. It's the courage to be out of step. It's the courage to build distinctly Christian homes where the gospel is displayed in relationships ordered according to Scripture and not according to convenience. You may have heard the quote before from Tertullian where he says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, meaning that faithful witnesses dying is what causes the church to grow. I read a book this past week and the author took that quote and instead of saying the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, he said the love of mothers and fathers is the seed of the church. And I wrote in the margin in giant block letters, Amen. It's the courage to build distinctly Christian homes where our relationships are ordered according to the Bible and not according to convenience. It's the courage to practice hospitality and generosity in a world that is increasingly attempting to isolate us from one another. You want to be radical? Show hospitality to someone. Care for them. Be generous. It's the courage to be bold in witnessing to the gospel even when that testimony is derided as backward and oppressive. And it's the courage to be identified more with a crucified and risen Savior than with any earthly idea, movement, philosophy, political party, or place. It's the courage to be identified with Christ. That's what we need in our day, brothers and sisters. We need a renaissance of Christian courage. But that rebirth is only going to happen. It will only happen if we recenter our lives and our churches on the centrality of Christ, as we see here in Revelation chapter 1. I don't know very many things, but I know that Jesus is the point of the Bible, and therefore he ought to be the point of our lives and our church. The one born in Bethlehem is the Lord of history, the reigning Son of Man. That's what we see here. He's present to sustain His church. He's mighty to defend His church. And He's sovereign to save His church. His word to us is fear not. And therefore, our response is to pray, oh, to pray for the courage to stand with Him. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are not by nature a courageous people. We are small and weak and limited and frail and often afraid. We do not know what tomorrow will bring, let alone next year. And so we are praying, God, that you would give us grace to see Christ in his glory, to recognize who he is and what he has done, and then to experience the fruit of that vision in the form of courage.
Help us to hear, Father, the command of our Lord to fear not. Help us to be courageous Christians who are willing to be out of step with everything else so that we might be in line with Christ. Father, deepen our love for Jesus so that we might be courageous in faithfulness to Him. We pray, God, we plead with You to do this work among us for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.